so we're actually going to start this video, this podcast with a quick disclaimer. The conversations that we have on this show are in jest and, um, you know, all the, you know, the facts that we report on might be true, but the speculation that we do from there and the wild conspiracy theories um, are untrue, are not to be believed. The Beatles did not kill JFK. And the reason I'm making that clear at the beginning of this episode is because some of the facts that will be presented in this episode could potentially, out of context, lead someone to believe that they did. That's Rocky. terrifying. What? Rocky, Rocky, you can't just play to the woke mob like this. It's Welcome right. back to Pulp Friction. <laughs> it's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky. Sam's name is Sam. Leon's name is Leon. This is part of our ongoing series on the Beatles, where we try to solve their riddle for teens, and we'll settle for nothing less. We won't. We won't. We're going to crack this case. We are. We will. And, we we <laughs> and we've already made some very strong uh, inroads. But we're going to start, as always, with a few riddles for teens. Thank God. God bless. This is what we love to see. It like, is. Go, it's what I love to see. Can't go down a chimney up, both playing chess, eight-letter word. Huh? Looking for ones, I'm, look, I'm looking through the list for the ones oh, we haven't the done yet. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. This is the one that we stopped on last time. We don't have to do it, but let's uh, see if we want to. Now that we're refreshed. Tom is younger than Dave, but older uh, than Jill. Lou okay. is older than Sally, who is older than Tom. Dave is older than Lou. Who's the middle child? I don't care. Yeah. Ratio? Honestly, <laughs> L? And you're bald? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I do believe it's Sally. Uh, but let's look at the text here. I have no damn idea. This one might require a pen and paper or the notes app on your teen cell phone. Oh. The, oh. the trick is to skip the second clue because there's not enough info to know whether to place Lou and Sally above or below Dave until you read the third clue. I don't think that's the trick. <laughs> I think I don't know that that is the trick, yeah. I think if you skip the second clue, you're going to not know who Sally is, who is the answer to the question. Yeah. Sally is the answer. Okay. Here's, a more, here's more of a riddle. This one's a riddle. <laughs> this one's a riddle. What is heavy going forward, but not going backward? A car uphill. <laughs> uh, object whose properties I, that have just been listed. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Could be. Well, uh, let's see if the uh, if the text here helps us, uh, or if it just gives it away. This is a play on how you read the sentence. Okay. It seems okay. to mean a riddle. In other words, it seems to mean that the answer is not heavy going backwards, but really, it's saying that the answer backward is spelled not. Uh. Um. Ton. Okay. You and your team may have fun debating whether this one is a fairly worded question. See how their argument holds up now? <laughs> the sort of activity like of a... this riddle is in fact to have your team sort of challenge the riddle on its premise, and then the team has won by not answering the riddle. Oh, it's like a Zen Quan in that way. Yeah. I like it. I like yeah, this pretty, one, actually. Pretty good. It's just too much for my tiny brain to handle. I just won't go. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll get into it. We'll do a couple more. What goes up and never comes down? Ball. Ball. Oh, you got, you got it. You got to hand it to him. You throw that ball up, and you never know which which way it'll go. Yeah. So true. It goes, it goes up and never comes down. Um. Ball. 
Well, the freaking, also... the freaking, the freaking cost of living. <laughs> death to Texas. I tell you, folks, death to Texas. <laughs> in jest, of course. I'll, in jest, yes. I was about to say very seriously. I'll say that in jest. I'll ingest that. This is one of those. This is one of those riddles that seems totally obvious when you find out the answer, but hard to guess when you first hear the clue. So They're always saying that. If you know the answer. You know the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy once you know the answer. See if your teen can get it. Growing up is probably top of mind for them anyway. Huh? Try more brain teasers for kids. That'll beat boredom, and that's a link to brain teasers for kids. The answer is your age. Oh. Right. Okay. Well, it's a good thing time is a construct. Yeah, that is a good thing. What can go through glass without breaking it? A very Light. small particle. <laughs> I mean, well, you've bo- we both said the same thing just now. You've both yeah. said the same thing, and you're both correct. Yes, we um, are. Quick-thinking teens, like the two of you, the might get is- this right away. But... If they focus too much on the word breaking, they'll be thinking about three-dimensional objects and the question will seem impossible. That's true. I did that. Yeah, you focus too much on three-dimensional objects and things seemed impossible. We've all been there. I'm rotating a glass in my head. Solving riddles instead involves getting creative and looking at all possibilities. Uh Uh-huh. So this is teaching us a lesson about solving riddles in and of itself. Yeah. I like that. No, I I like that. The answer with the greatest uh, possibilities always is just a really little guy. True. Yeah, really little guy goes up and never comes down. Uh, Heavy going forward, but not going backward. These are all all making a lot of sense. But it does involve getting creative. And so as we're trying to solve... It does involve getting creative. It takes a great mind to to think of a, a really, really little guy. It takes a dark mind to solve a twisted crime. Okay. Yeah. What co- what comes what comes I can't even read this one. <laughs> what, what, what comes up to let us go or goes down to make us stay? The flag. This is the Beatles lyric. <laughs> it does kind of feel that way. <laughs> what comes up to let us go or <laughs> or is a weird word to put in a riddle goes down to make us stay. The thing at the when you're driving on it's the when the train tracks when you're at the oven when the when you of the, the thing food. the turns not the the um the gate thing the the striped white and black um the big bar that goes up and down you know when, when you a go train. to a car rental and to prevent you from stealing the car, they put like big spikes at the entrance that you can only go in, but then you can't go out of the cold hot food. Mm. But these come up to let you go or go down to make you stay. Oh, shit. So, so the thing Sam's saying works a little better, um, even better than what the actual answer is. Boat-loving teams <laughs> might come up with the answer to this one. <laughs> Oh, the canal log! <laughs> the canal? But those who <laughs> haven't been on one, on a boat, that is, very often might not. Riddles can make teens think outside their zones. <laughs> outside their own zones of what they're into. Give them a you little clue if your necessary. Teen think about canals? Yeah, give them a little clue if necessary to help them on their way. The answer is an anchor. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that sort of, but I don't know. I don't know if it like comes up to let you go. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I it guess. does. I guess. Okay, but the phrasing is just—I don't know who is sitting here and writing that and thinking, "Wow, this would be good to say aloud to other people." Yeah. Uh, let's do one or two more, just to get us in the right frame of mind. Yeah, let's get our juices flowing. Here's a list of sports. Awesome. Golf, darts, tennis, cricket, football, badminton. Mm -hmm. Which should come next? Ball. Archery, boxing, squash, gymnastics, or baseball? Ball. Squash. Squash. I wasn't anticipating... um... I wasn't anticipating uh, 
uh, multiple choice question. Yeah, what uh, what makes you say squash? Next best sport. <laughs> this, is, this is in order of the best sports golf darts tennis cricket football <laughs> badminton and then squash is that's right <laughs> i can see it that's correct um is this a list of of sports from most dense to least dense propelling implement <laughs> mm-hmm. so golf is the most dense, and badminton is the least dense, is what you're saying. Yeah, because golf clubs, those things are, like, solid, and badminton rackets have, like, a bunch of holes in it. It's just string. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, so and archery would be next, because that's even more, just, it's even, even less, less string. string. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> let's look at the chunk here. Teams might not understand this riddle, even after they find out the answer. <laughs> Okay. So that's a new okay. paradigm, kind of. Usually it's like, this one's easy once you know the answer. This one is difficult even if you know the answer. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's not, it's not about Most... the sports themselves. That's just to throw you off. And it's clearly not alphabetical order. But thinking about order is oh. closer to the right answer. Okay. So the answer is gymnastics. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Why not? Not the best sport. <laughs> Sure, sure. I'll put gymnastics <laughs> at the top of that list. Gymnastics well, over over cricket, over tennis, the king's game. Yeah. The the gymnasts are the real kings. So why is gymnastics correct? Each sport has one more letter than the sport before. Badminton has nine, so gymnastics has ten. And how many men well, of letters does the Royal Academy <laughs> have? Ooh. Ooh, old before their birth. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You see. Let's do one more. We've uh, we're we're running through these riddles here, but there's always more. We'll never run out. Will we? I start in little, but I end in full. <laughs> You'll find me in half and complete. Mole, that's the moon. Moon. <laughs> Mole, a really, that's a the really little guy. A really little guy. Well, he starts in little, but he ends in full. And you'll find him in half yeah. and complete. If you soak him in water, uh, he's like one of those foam dinosaurs. Yes. This is very Beatles, too. And you'll find me in half and complete. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Starts in little, ends in full. Uh, well, we start in little. Um, we don't necessarily end in full. Uh, but uh, painting starts in little and ends in full. And you can find it in half and complete. Sort of yes. an Oreo. An Oreo. <laughs> Riddles also love to play with the spelling of words. So for this one, your teen might be looking for a literal answer when really the clue is referring to the letters inside the words. Little, full, half, and complete all contain L's. Ah. Uh, it's the letter L. Yeah. L ratio. Ratio bald. Do we feel ready to spend a little time on the Beatles? Yeah. Cool. I'd like to so, ratio the Beatles. Yeah, we can ratio the Beatles a little bit. So to um start with uh, a recap of where our quest has found us so far, we have our guiding principle, quarrymen old before our birth, straining each muscle and sinew. We have right. the mystery of the Beatles' whereabouts on 9-11-62. Yes. We have their first record with all its you'll never know how much I love you, things things of that nature. We have um, the fact that they killed JFK. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we have the admission on their second album that they did it for the money. And the questions we're sort of looking at now are whose money? What was uh-huh. the arrangement there? What, you know, what happened after that and the fallout of it? And we started to suspect perhaps that Barry Gordy might be at the root of this conspiracy. Yeah. So to kick things off here, we're going to take a a brief or perhaps an extended detour to introduce Barry Gordy. Yeah. No, Uh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be laughing because, yeah, that that, that is something that not everybody knows. It's what we must do, yeah. And so um, Barry Gordy III, known professionally as Barry Gordy Jr., is the founder of Motown Records. 
He is the uh, seventh of eight children born to Barry Gordy II, known professionally as Barry Gordy Sr. The other members of the Gordy family include, but are not limited to, Esther Gordy, Barry's sister, who was CEO of Motown in the mid-60s, Anna Gordy Gay, Barry's sister, who was also a record executive and wrote numerous songs for other artists, including her then-husband, Marvin Gay. Uh, Gwen Gordy Fuqua, Barry's sister once again, who was also a record executive, who married Motown artist Harvey Fuqua. Harvey Fuqua discovered uh, Sylvester, discovered the Weather Girls, and his nephew is the director Antoine Fuqua. The other Gordy siblings were also involved in running Motown, Tamla, and Anna Records. Um... Iris Gordy, daughter of Fuller Gordy, served as a Motown executive in the 70s. She helped launch the careers of DeBarge, Tina Marie, and Rick James. Carrie Gordy, Barry Gordy's son, was a prolific uh, producer, music exec, who worked at Motown, Interscope, and Prince's Paisley Park Records. Uh, His brother, Kennedy Gordy, was professionally known as Rockwell and had a number one hit in 1984 with Somebody's Watching Me. Ronda, yeah, not great. Rhonda Ross Kendrick is the daughter of Barry Gordy and Diana Ross. She was a series regular on the soap opera Another World and is married to the jazz musician Rodney Kendrick. Denise Gordy is the niece of Barry Gordy. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she was married to actor Richard Lawson, who is currently married to Tina Knowles, Beyonce's mother. Uh, Denise and Richard's daughter, Bianca Lawson, is a prolific TV actor whose credits include Buffy, Dawson's Creek, Sister, Sister, Vampire Diaries, and Pretty Little Liars. Hmm. Barry Gordy's son, Stefan Gordy, and his grandson, Skylar Gordy, are known professionally as Red Foo and Sky Blue and perform together as LMFAO. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Finally, Barry Gordy Sr., his first cousin was Bessie Lillian Gordy, whose married name was Bessie Lillian Carter, and her son, Barry Gordy's second cousin, was President Jimmy Carter. Oh. Okay. Yes. Okay. Jimmy Carter, dark horse candidate in the 1976 presidential race. He launched his first ever campaign for public office on October 1st, 1962, the same day that the Beatles signed their first contract with manager Brian Epstein. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So basically, the American elite is a flat circle. Yeah, it, it, it's quite a strange <laughs> sort of timeline here, because Jimmy Carter was a farmer before he ran for office, and he came in for this Georgia State Senate seat 15 days before the election, mm-hmm. on the day that the Beatles signed their contract, and five days before they released their first single. So it's interesting. Barry Gordy... Yeah. Dropped out of high school sometime in the mid-40s to become a boxer, and he boxed professionally for a number of years before being drafted into the Korean War. After returning from war, he got his GED, got married, and developed an interest in music. He wrote songs and opened a short-lived store in Detroit called the 3D Record Mart, which featured jazz music and 3D glasses. I'm not sure what where the 3D glasses <laughs> came into it. <laughs> well, it sounds like it would be a hit business model today. I want one on my yeah. screen now. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I can imagine is that there were like portraits on the walls or something that like had some cool effect when you put your glasses on. And you sit there and listen to jazz and you just point and laugh and you go, ha ha. Yeah. There's a, there's a little guy and he's, he's kind of, it's kind of like he's coming off the wall. Mm-hmm. He connected with singer Jackie Wilson, with whom he wrote his first minor hit, Reed Petit, in 1957. Uh, Gordy and his siblings quickly found success as songwriters, uh, which he invested into producing. He signed his first artist, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, in 1957 after starting his label with an $800 loan. The Miracles gave Motown their first platinum hit, Shop Around, in 1960. And over the next decade, Motown would discover artists including The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, The Four Tops, The Contours, Gladys Knight and the Pips, The Commodores, The Velvelettes, Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, and The Jackson Five. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, I don't know if he's a seventh son of a seventh son, but he is certainly a seventh son. He's the seventh of eight, yes. And that gives you powers. True. Surely. Yes. Um, Barry Gordy claimed in October 1964 that the Beatles' American breakthrough that year caused uh, Motown, which was then Tamla Records, sales to double. Around the same time, Motown lawyer George Schiffer wrote that, quote, the Beatles, our best publicists, mention our records and artists everywhere they go. (laughs) 
Uh, in his autobiography, Barry Gordy talks about the incident in which he agreed to a reduced licensing fee for the Beatles covers, but doesn't really say why. He does mention, however, that he later learned the Beatles albums had already been printed and shipped. <laughs> so if he had stood his ground, uh-huh. he could have just gotten the bigger fee. Well, I mean, this guy clearly knows something that the rest of us don't. So the, he, you know, the story of Bo- of both um, George Martin and Barry Gordy is that they had this phone call to talk about it. Um, but the fact that, like, when this phone call would have happened, the records, but like, like some people believe that that phone call actually didn't happen. Uh-huh. Mm. The Beatles eventually met Gordy and several Motown artists during the 1965 Motown Review. Gordy noted that Lennon would say Marvin Guy. <laughs> oh. Yeah. They were big fans of Smokey Robinson, James Jamerson, and Benny Benjamin. James Jamerson and Benny Benjamin? James Jamerson and Benny Benjamin. Ostensibly, right. Barry Gordy is still in touch with the Beatles. In 2012, Paul McCartney refurbished an old piano that was held at the Motown Museum, and they presented it together. That is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Fixed up the old piano. So that is Barry Gordy. <laughs> and um, uh, as you can see, uh, a, a wildly influential figure um, who definitely was aware that the Beatles were using his songs, and I think at the time didn't really care that much, although there's some dispute about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that you know, he, he's a figure who, I think the Beatles don't really do many Motown covers, especially after, like, 1964, when they start getting, like, the weirder albums out. Um, but that relationship obviously does continue. It would be too easy to say that um, this Barry Gordy Jr. figure is a shrewd businessman with a uh, an ear for upcoming hits. Um, I think it's far more compelling to say that he has powers, but go on. Sure. I mean, he could really have powers. I, you know, no one right? else was able to do all the stuff that he did. Um, <laughs> this is true. The relationship to Jimmy Carter is uh, an interesting thing and something that, you know, you you could you could draw some kind of tenuous connection where it's like, if the Kennedys hadn't been killed, would there be a Jimmy Carter on the national stage? Maybe not. Right. But we'll see. The Beatles' second album, With the Beatles, was released on November 22nd, 1963, the same day that Kennedy was shot. And Oof. their follow-up single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, was released on November 29th, 1963, a week later. The stated reasons for this were numerous. EMI had just installed four-track recording equipment right after the Beatles finished the album. (laughs) So they were like... (laughs) Wow. You hate to see it. Yeah. (laughs) It's almost like they were waiting. Remember that time we were listening to the Beatles uh, drive my car in a dark room in the student center late at night and all of the tambourine was in one ear and everything else was in the other? Yeah. (laughs) That's all. That's that four-track magic. Oh, yes. That beautiful, beautiful tambourine. Mm-hmm. EMI and uh, Brian Epstein were concerned with maximizing the single sales because it was written specifically to appeal to the American market. Sure it was. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> What's up? I, ca- I can't hear that. I can't hear that and just sort of let it let it go by, you know. Yeah, I want to hold your hand. Oh, uh, because what about that is distinctively American? <laughs> is what I have to wonder. I mean, it's definitely um, more repetitive than their other songs. <laughs> I guess. Strong point, actually. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, if it's um, one thing that Americans like, it's just the same shit over and over. Yeah, I want to hold your hand. We could stop and listen to it, but I I don't think we have to. I don't think we have to either, yeah. Yeah. I think Um, we mustn't. (laughs) The lyrics, I'll tell you you something. I think you'll understand when I say that something. I want to hold your hand. Uh, And it continues in that fashion for, for the rest of it. Yeah. What can you do? Yeah. 
so Capitol had records, the US sort of sister of, of EMI had rejected the Beatles recordings up to that point, and they were like, We have all this momentum in the UK, we gotta try and break through. So they wrote a single just for the US, produced it on on four track tapes and put it out a week after their album to maximize sales. Lennon and McCartney wrote it together at the home of influential endocrinologist Dr. Richard Asher, who McCartney was living with at the time. What? Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. He, he he lived with Dr. Asher for several years, actually, uh, prime Beatles years, and uh, Asher was the first to name and describe Munchausen syndrome, and oh. he authored one of the most influential papers in medicine, which was called "The Dangers of Going to Bed." Sure. Yeah, and and Paul was dating uh, Dr. Asher's daughter, Jane Asher, mm-hmm. but I think. I think he was living with Dr. Asher for longer than that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm engrossed. Got along with the good doctor. Um, at the time, She Loves You had returned to number one on the UK charts due to the press's nonstop Beatles coverage. I Want to Hold Your Hand uh, took its place, blew up the spot, over one million advance copies sold, let alone what it sold when it actually released. So um, it was a huge hit, if you can believe it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. December 10th, 1963. Walter Cronkite uh, was looking for a lighter story to air in the wake of the nation's ongoing mourning. And he picks up a story on Beatlemania that was originally going to air on November 22nd, as we talked about. After seeing that story, 15-year-old Marsha Albert of Silver Spring, Maryland, wrote to a local DJ, Carol James, asking, why can't we have music like that here in America? <laughs> Mm. Well, gee, I mm. James pulled some strings to obtain a copy of the song. The song being, um, I think she loves you, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and had and had Marsha Albert come on air to introduce the song a week later, December seventeenth. So Walter Cronkite sort of saves this story that might never have aired otherwise. And uh, this one random teenager in silver spring writes to a dj it's not like you know you would expect that like a bunch of people watch this and there's suddenly like huge demand for the beatles music and i'm sure there was some demand but it really is mostly just like you know one person writing to one dj who happens to like know a british uh airline pilot or something <laughs> and, and get gets a copy of the song and puts it on so the teens really like skiffle yeah it is about the teens though the teens, yeah. The the teens were all about it, and I think if you look at when the the teens are really what it's all about. Yeah. That's what I find. This incident seems to be what pushed Capitol Records to get serious about releasing the Beatles' music in the U.S. They put out I Want to Hold Your Hand on December 26th, which is three weeks ahead of schedule, and uh, I saw her standing there. They released as the B-side. Its release during the holiday season helped it catch on in the U.S. with teens, who were on vacation. Uh, the transistor radio was one of the big gifts for teens that holiday season. So you can imagine all these American teens with their brand new radios. New Beatles song came out. There's all this hype about it. It's the first Beatles song released in the U.S., so they're all listening to it. I'm you know, imagining all these teens. Good. You know, in the wake of the Kennedy death, um, the Beatles saw their opportunity uh to comfort a mourning nation um yeah and they and they foresaw this death because they planned it and so they yeah. also planned this uh yeah. to increase their record sales here's a quote uh from the 1978 book the beatles forever the the pundit's explanation for america's sudden beatlemania had the country's youth reaching on mass for a hero figure to fill the void left by president kennedy right oh <laughs> a hero figure yeah, I don't, I don't buy that really. <laughs> but... We're now sort of doing the hero's journey about it. <laughs> so the Beatles in America, sort of an isekai, if you think about it. I'm thinking about it. They come to America and they suddenly have these powers. Yeah, yeah, and they they have to sort of discover this new world. Although they had perhaps secretly been there earlier. Um, the oft quoted thing at the time was like. 
a nation in mourning these teens who were definitely like all about president kennedy up until now are, are replacing that with the beatles their new yeah. hero figure yeah yeah no the this tracks the best boy the baltimore sun said a few days after um i want to hold your hand was released quote america had better take thought as to how it will deal with the invasion indeed a restrained beatles go home might be just the thing a restrained Beatles go home. <laughs> yeah. Beatles go home. Yeah, just, you know, Beatles go home. But restrained, like. Restrained, yeah. Don't 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 be xenophobic about it. Just be like <laughs> Just Beatles. send them home in chains. Yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, restrain them. Just get the message across, yeah. <laughs> the restrained Beatles have to go home. <laughs> Part of their success can be traced to the total reversal of their reputation in the UK because they were also being treated as an invasion there. But then they did that performance for the royal family that we talked about in the last episode. And that sort of like got everyone on their side. In November, the Daily Telegraph compared them to Hitler. And in December, the Times compared them to Beethoven. So that's how quick the turnaround was. Oh, so I see the uh, the German connection is still happening. The German connection, of course, and the uh, the the Hitler connection was was about the sort of uh, masses, the sort of throngs of people, uh, their 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 adulation for them. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> those throngs. Yeah, <laughs> those adulating throngs. Yeah. <laughs> Who adulated this throng? <laughs> US media started picking up on the Beatles after Epstein negotiated an appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. Mere rumors of this booking led to more gigs and lots more press coverage as their US breakthrough seemed inevitable. It was like Ed Sol- the Ed Sullivan appearance is coming, it's gonna blow everyone away. We need to hop on the Beatles thing. The Beatles are gonna be the big thing. A cartoon that accompanied the New York Times Magazine piece on Beatlemania summed it up. A girl is shown playing a record on her phonograph while explaining to her bewildered father, but naturally they make you want to scream, Daddy-O. That's the whole idea of the Beatles sound. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what the idea is. <laughs> the idea, that's the idea. The idea is that everyone is, everyone is <laughs> yelling so loud that you can't hear for shit, and therefore you don't have to listen to the Beatles. Yeah, they're sort of like R.L. Stein. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Their stuff just designed to make you scream. Um, but but you have to imagine the sort of cultural like it's almost a psyop in a way that these these teens have never heard a Beatles song or have only heard like maybe brief clips of the Beatles on the news uh-huh. and are being primed with this idea that when you hear the Beatles you scream. Right. That's what I've been saying. But it does make sense. No, you're right. There's like hmm, this like sort of it's exactly the psyop situation. That's 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 eerie. It's uncanny. It, it's very strange. Yeah. Some of Capitol's tactics for marketing the Beatles in the U.S. ahead of their Ed Sullivan debut included having DJs and retailers wear Beatles wigs. What? Yeah. Or public humiliation campaigns were the <laughs> yeah. tactic. Sort of a, you know, just. <laughs> <laughs> just having them you know paraded down the streets in stocks <laughs> oh my god this is like the 70s so you know those wigs are not good yeah no these are early 60s quality wigs they also yeah. uh, had had people post around stickers that said the beatles are coming with like silhouettes of their hairstyles <laughs> oh no 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 oh. awful on January 3rd, 1964, preempting the Beatles' Ed Sullivan appearance, Jack Parr of the Jack Parr program ran footage of one of their BBC appearances as a joke. Yeah. As a joke. As a joke. He was, uh, yeah, he was like at the, the, the like Beatles' royal concert, I think, and he hated them. So he oh. was like... He he had this whole bit going on where like a week prior he was like, I'm gonna have the Beatles first appearance on US television, and then like got everyone really hype about it and then played this archival footage from the BBC. <laughs> and you know, because everyone knew that like the Ed Sullivan thing was happening. 
Let me just let me just steal that real quick. Um, but his ratings doubled for that show, and it's said to be the single greatest like hype up preceding the Sullivan appearance. Like it, it got people more excited. <laughs> Interesting. Really far ahead of his time. It's frustrated Capital because the footage was of the Beatles performing "She Loves You," and Capital did had passed on the rights to "She Loves You." <laughs> oh mm. yes. Yeah. So uh, Capitol put out a press release where they referred to the broadcast as, quote, an obvious attempt to scoop arch-foe Ed Sullivan. Um, What? Scoop arch-foe Ed Sullivan. Television nemesis or Ed Sullivan. Television arch-foe. Here's the thing. So VJ, the independent Chicago label, which we talked about earlier, um, they, like, got the rights to the songs that Capitol passed on. So they had distribution rights for the Beatles' first couple releases. Uh-huh. So with Beatlemania cresting, both Capitol and VJ were rushing to get a Beatles album out. The first Beatles album released in the U.S. was Introducing the Beatles, released on January 10th by VJ Records. The second Beatles album released in the U.S. was Meet the Beatles, released on January 20th by Capitol Records. Yes, Beat the Beatles. Beat the right. Beatles. So you had two Beatles albums <laughs> from two different record labels come out within two weeks of each other. What and was on those albums? They were just a hodgepodge of material from the Beatles' first two albums. They both had I Saw Her Standing There on them. <laughs> sure. And then otherwise they were just, you know, they were like 10 tracks a piece, and so they just sort of split up the material there. Uh, but for several weeks straight, Meet the Beatles was the number one album in the country, and the Beatles was number two. Yeah, that works. So this is them permeating the culture of America with their power of their, their heinous psyop, let us not forget. Yes, yes. And Meet the Beatles retained the number one spot for 11 weeks before being replaced by another Beatles album, their third album released in the U.S., which was called The Beatles' Second Album. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> Another off-sided reason for the Beatles' quick success in the U.S. is that they filled a vacuum occupied by the biggest names in 50s rock and roll. Elvis had been drafted, Chuck Berry was in jail, Buddy Holly was dead. There was, you know, one could say that for, you know, people who were looking for that that old-school rock and roll thing, like, you had new rock and roll with, like... Um, I mean, you still had th- this. This theory doesn't really hold up either because you had the Beach Boys starting to have hits. You had um, Surfing Bird was a hit around this time. Like there, there was still rock music, and obviously Motown. There was still like rock music being put out. But there's an idea out there that the Beatles, you know, sort of took on the fandom that those other people had. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that the Beatles killed Buddy Holly for their personal gain? Well. As we talked about in our analysis of the second album, there's an implication that they killed someone prior. I don't know if the Buddy Holly thing really lines up. They would have also <laughs> had to kill the Big Bopper, um, which would be the, a crying shame. The Big Bopper was collateral damage. <laughs> yeah. They were trying to save the Big Bopper. They couldn't get to him. Um, yeah, Buddy Holly died in 1959, so that would be a rough sort of timeline there. But anything's possible. And that's really the message of this series. Anything's possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On February 7th, 1964, the <laughs> Beatles arrived in America for what was allegedly the first time at the <clears throat> newly named John F. Kennedy International Airport. Mm. Mm. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Must have been gloating. Two days later, they gave their first U.S. appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Initially... Ed Sullivan's producers were not interested in having the Beatles performed. It was only after Sullivan visited the UK in the late 60s and saw, again, these adulating throngs. (laughs) That's when he insisted on having them booked. Disgusting. The deal to have the Beatles perform was finalized on November 11th, 1963, 11 days prior to Kennedy's assassination. Oh. The Sullivan performance aired on February 9th, 1963. Um, George was recovering from strep throat. He was was sick again. (laughs) Typical George. (laughs) Typical George. Uh, Richard Nixon's daughters were in attendance. What? 
they had been invited by Jack Parr. Jack Parr. Remind Jack us, Parr. folks in the back. Jack Parr, uh, Ed Sullivan's nemesis, who uh, played the archival Beatles footage a month earlier. Oh, that guy. Right. So that's weird. <laughs> that's thoroughly, yeah. thoroughly. We've 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 gotten to three presidents in a pretty short time here. <laughs> Sullivan began the show by announcing that Elvis Presley and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, had sent the Beatles a letter wishing them the best of luck. It was later reported that the Colonel sent the letter without Elvis's knowledge. What? We uh did a we, we did a whole episode on Elvis, only two episodes, because we talked about Elvis the guy and then Elvis the movie. Um so if you want to know more about the Colonel, you can listen to those. Basically, um, the colonel was doing a lot of shit on Elvis's behalf without Elvis knowing about it. I would too if I were named the colonel. Yeah. The broadcast drew over 73 million viewers, or about 40% of the U.S. population. What? That's like, <laughs> that's like the, the most adulating throng of them all. Yeah, that's a pretty adulating throng. But if you think, just just to, to, to talk about the PSYOP again and sort of the, the timeline. Please do. Please do. November 1963 is when this kicks off. That is when, like, Americans are hearing about the Beatles for the first time, basically. Except for the ones who, like, are hip. The ones, you know, if they don't know, they don't know. So, for and for most of the American public, it's really December or even January that they're hearing about the Beatles. February 9th. 40% of Americans are watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And Ed Sullivan has a huge hit show and people are watching it all the time. But I think there was this idea that had permeated the culture that this is the next, you know, Elvis on Sullivan. This is the like big cultural moment Ed Sullivan performance. Again, people hearing this having never heard a Beatles song. Huh. So I do think the PSYOP comparison does hold up. Um, yeah, this is truly horrifying. <laughs> and even by the time the show, like by the time the show comes out, you have two Beatles albums in the top ten of al- of, of like material uh, or number one and number two, I should say, with material from the first two albums. Um, and you have "I Want to Hold Your Hand" being a big hit on the radio. But I think even still, you're talking about forty percent. You're talking about a lot of people who only know the Beatles in passing, who have just just heard. And, you know, media was was quite a bit more consolidated at this time. There are only three major networks, and they also controlled most of the radio stations. They've just been hearing this whole time, the Beatles are the ones to watch out for. We might, in fact, call this moment the time when the Beatles metastasized in America. Yes. And again, so much of this ties back to what changed in the UK after they performed for the Queen. Again, they you know the British press kind of reviled them before then. They were seen as this you know the the these horny sort of hooligans, <laughs> and and they were. But they performed for the Queen, and just there was there was like a, a a flip of the switch. Suddenly they were national heroes, and like that totally positive reception in the UK is part of what kind of allowed them to develop that reputation in the u.s so they went from um abhorred to adulated i just think i just think that there's obviously a bigger plan is what i want to jump in and say here is that yeah i think the the you know the disclaimer is well worth it that you gave at the beginning of the episode i think that Mm -hmm. you know there's this bizarre movement of like every piece of bass media in america um, to proclaim these guys the new fucking kings of rock and roll, um, which hadn't been reinforced for the minds of you know, most of Americans, um, even the ones tuning in, yeah, by anything substantial, yeah, and it 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 does seem to align in such a strange way with the Kennedy assassination, which I think is why a lot of the pundits of the time tried to spin it that way like these people must really love kennedy right <laughs> but it, it's you know the beatles killed kennedy <laughs> yeah uh-huh. and we I, I think what we see clearly here is you know it's not just they did it for a lump sum they did it to get like bags of money they 
orchestrated this plan to go on Ed Sullivan before JFK was assassinated. And they, and they performed for the queen mother, like about this same time. And the chips all sort of fall into place for the Beatles to come in to this nation still in mourning um, with the entire global media on their side and become the biggest band in the world to people who have never heard a single Beatles song. Right. You know who has that sort of um, clairvoyant power, that sort of uh, understanding of the pieces and where to place Mm. them perfectly, like in a game of chess? Well... There was there was kind of a guy that we talked about at the very beginning of this episode. Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy, the puppet master. Kind of the maestro of music. Yeah. That's not what? <laughs> he's he's <laughs> like if music had a maestro. Um Yeah, he's like <laughs> if there was like like a conductor of some sort in music. Yeah. <laughs> we can begin to speculate that Barry Gordy is sort of the mastermind here, and we could point to as another piece of evidence. The fact that Gordy and Epstein have both talked about this phone call they had where Epstein supposedly pulled one over on him that many sources say didn't actually happen. Right. And there's also something interesting, I think, to this rivalry or apparent rivalry between Jack Parr and Ed Sullivan, where it seems like what Jack Parr did actually helped to elevate the Beatles. And Jack Parr, you know, being the connection between Nixon and the Beatles. Is that is there a Democrat Republican divide there, or is this all part of one? Are Jack Pollard and Ed Sullivan actually in cahoots? Right. Whatever it was, it worked. Right. The Beatles dominated the U.S. charts throughout 1964. They notched 30 hit songs in that year alone. Uh, on April 4th, they occupied the entire top five. This is when we start to see the press talking about the British invasion. Life, Life Magazine's quote was, In 1776, England lost her American colonies. Last week, the Beatles brought them back. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although I do hate the English, that's a, a gobsmackingly funny way to put that. It's pretty damn funny. They opened the floodgates for dozens of other British acts to break through in the U.S., Dusty Springfield has a hit song a week later, and then, like, Dave Clark 5 comes shortly after that, and it's just like, you know, by the end of the year, just (laughs) Dave Clark (laughs) 5. By the end of the year, a third of all the top ten hits for 1964 were performed by British artists. And the Beatles continued their U.S. tour. They performed at the Washington Coliseum, Carnegie Hall, then they flew to Miami Beach, where they met Muhammad Ali. Right. And they, you know, went on a world tour after that. They recorded a new album and a film, both called A Hard Day's Night. Um, (laughs) And we will talk about those next time. We'll also talk about how, while on that tour, they met Bob Dylan, who, as the legend goes, introduced them to cannabis. Oh, God. (laughs) Let's fucking go. Let's fucking go, dudes. So we've, we've... Painted a really precise picture, and there's almost not even a resolve here <laughs> when it comes to it's the almost, Beatles. It's almost too perfect. It, it almost makes too much sense. It almost, almost. makes sense. It almost <laughs> makes Do we have, like... We, we obviously have a very clear picture of this clandestine, behind-closed-doors thing involving Barry Gordy and potentially multiple presidents. Right. Um, And Ed Sullivan, this coordinated plan to make the Beatles a global phenomenon. Do we have a clue to guide us next week as we talk, next time as we talk about A Hard Day's Night, the film and album? I mean... I have a question, which okay. is clearly uh, pretty much all the entertainment elite in the United States and the political elite came together, one may say, uh, to make the Beatles an overnight success. And my question is, is why? And I think the answer mm. to that why is Barry Gordy, because Barry Gordy knows everything. Yeah. 
Mm, what did he know? What was he cooking? What was he cooking? They were they were letting him cook. They were really letting him cook back then, and we have that quote from the Motown lawyer that the Beatles were Motown's best publicists. But clearly, if Barry Gordy just wanted, if Barry Gordy had the power to just make someone the biggest star in the world, he could have done that with himself or with someone from Motown and not bothered and not bothered with the Beatles. Even if you imagine that there's like the racial barrier there, you know, Barry Gordy could have found a white artist to put on Motown and, 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 you know, enriched himself more directly that way. Uh No, another question I have also is Elvis was the first experiment. Then the Beatles Mm. came after, then who's next? Mm. that is an interesting angle to think about the relationship between where where, was elvis another experiment in the same vein and if so you know what happened because because elvis was a big success the beatles were a big success (laughs) so what was the next step of whatever plan that was yeah (laughs) but i i think the good question that we can sort of think about is we're fiddling with the idea that Barry Gordy is the puppet master here, but we we still have room maybe for the idea that it's someone else. Um, I think the the why question is really what we need to focus on now, because it seems like we have the what, unless we are totally off base about everything and everything fits so perfectly that it can't possibly be right. But maybe as we watch that film... Um, it'll tell us something that the 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 true the the anecdotes that we have don't. And I think it will. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Sam and Leon, thank you so much for joining me on another another crackdown, <laughs> another <laughs> investigation. Thank you so much for inviting us. The question um, we're leaving this episode with is why? Because we have our, you know. Last episode, we decided that it was for the money, and this episode, we revealed what kind of money we are talking about. Um, The why is going to be what we look at as we explore A Hard Day's Night. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. Um, We hope you enjoy. If you like the show, you can subscribe or share or follow or rate or whatever, Um, and you can just share it with your friends, let people know you like the show. That's one of the best things you can do. And next time, we will be returning to the Twilight Saga, so stay tuned. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.